The, but I didn't hear the bells, though. No, nor did I. I rather wanted to hear the bells. Are they only central London? Well, they're Westminster Abbey, but I thought church bells were going to ring as well. Kind oh. of like the idea of bells ringing across the country. There was a minute of silence yesterday. I went, I went to the cinema to see the NT Live of Much Ado About Nothing, and there, there was a minute of silence followed by the national anthem. And it, you forget that when, the, we, you know, we refer to it as the National Theatre, but it is the Royal yeah. National Theatre. Yeah. And that her patronage is... Sort of decades long, and actually, they did. They had photographs of her with every single artistic director, which I found really moving. Yeah, I did. Um, I I was at uh, the Royal Opera House at uh, Covent Garden, um, and again, Royal Opera House, and I did. Yeah. This, I did some research for them a few years ago on, um, in their archives, and though yeah, digging out those photographs of of. Um, I imagine the Queen being at various events with various dancers from the past, and you realise how strongly she's bound into our lives, and how how odd it is that we're sitting here talking um, on the day after she's died. Yeah. And I mean, kind of knew it was going to happen, but it still seems ninety six, ninety six, still seems extraordinary. Really. And seventy years of of reign is yeah. extraordinary. Is it the longest? It's the longest, longest ever reign, and yeah, you'd have to be. And it also means that only people over 75 or 76 have got any memory of a previous reign, which yeah. is, um, yeah, which is extraordinary, really. And, and, and her so, dad wasn't, wasn't, sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, her dad on. wasn't a monarch for long. He was wasn't he? very long because he takes over in 37? the abdication crisis, after the abdication crisis oh, so in 1937. And then he, 52. 16 years. Oh, that's pretty... Yeah, but it wasn't that. I mean, yeah. In, but actually, you know, a lot of there are a lot of short reigns in history. We just one of the pieces I was reading today said that you know you assume that a reign is a long time, yeah, because um, because she lasted for seventy years. But actually, she and Queen Victoria are the exceptions. Reigns on the whole are, you know, twenty five, thirty years tops. So it is it is extraordinary that we've lived through that, and it's a funny time to be talking. So we felt that it would be odd. Um, to record an episode of, um, as the actress said to the critic, without um, talking a bit about the Queen on stage and on screen. Yeah. So um, I'm going to say hello from me, which is... I'm the critic, Sarah Crompton. And hello from me, I'm Nancy Carroll, the actress. And we were talking a bit this morning, we've started um, in our pre-podcast conversation, and I'm... um, I was very struck that the odd thing about having worked on newspapers for so many years as I did, I mean, I I, I was um, on the Telegraph for years, is that you always have to know what you're going to go in in the morning, what your ideas are of the day. And if there's been a big national event, then all the heads of department come together and say what they think um, the paper should be doing. And my contribution this morning would be the way in which what we've seen of the Queen on stage in fictionalised um, form has effectively, you know, fed in and, and on screen as well, has fed in to how we, the public, really feel about her. I'm really interested that certainly in since the, the 80s, yeah. you know, she has been a figure in plays and in films and actors have offered their interpretations of her. Yeah. 
And I think we feel we got a glimpse of her in a way that, you know, obviously, you know, I met the Queen once, but I mean, most people have never, ever met her. I mean, you know, and, and that picture of her meeting her once is, is, is very small in terms of my memories of her as a whole. But I think it's in, it must be fascinating, uh, you know, to have been in power, to be born into a family that is in power. So dynastically, you are sort of predestined from the, mo- you know, from your first breath. Uh, and and everything about your education and the format of your childhood is about what your life will be, um, and and not knowing when that will start and to what degree, um, you know, responsibilities will kick in, and within her lifetime, that cultural fascination with what the royal family are, who they really are. There have always been films and books and poems and plays about the royal family from, you know, pre-Shakespeare to to now. But our fascination with what makes people tick psychologically and the actual gruesome truth about what goes on behind closed doors, I think is a sort of post-60s, post-70s phenomenon yeah. that people were interested in reality rather than fantasy yeah. and they were interested in dropping the walls as opposed to, you know, keeping the walls high. Yeah. And, and I think it isn't really until Peter Morgan you know, and the film of the Queen and then, of course, with the crown and everything else, that that we felt that we were even permitted to have, to take a view on it. It was always a bit of the sort of, you know, the, the slightly more tablo- tabloid press yeah. that, that took bets on when babies would arrive, what they would be called, what how long marriage would last, all that sort of stuff. Everybody would go, oh, well, that's, that's in yeah, terrible yeah. taste. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's actually quite recent. If you think that if she came into power in 52... Yeah, yeah. You know, that... Culturally, that's less than half of her monarchy has been this fascination with what she's really, what really makes her. Yeah, that we've been allowed to imagine. My sense is actually slightly earlier than Peter Morgan, and it's Alan Bennett because I do think Alan Bennett did a question of attribution, and that's 1988. Though it gets a much wider um, viewership, I think in the early 90s, I think in 1991, when it comes on to telly. Right. But that's a play about Anthony Blunt, who was revealed as a spy and who was master of the Queen's pictures. And it had this brilliant line about it being... an inquiry in which I think it's in which the conversations are imaginary, but the pictures are real. And he imagines a queen meeting Blunt in the galleries. And Blunt at that point has found a a figure, I think, in a Titian or something that he believes proves it's a Titian. So it's a question of attribution because he is an art historian is interested in whether this painting is by Titian or not. And the queen one kind of assumes by the end of the play um, is having a conversation about whether Blunt is what he seems and whether he himself is a forgery, i.e. he's pretending to be a member of the British establishment, but he in fact is a spy. Yeah. And I mean, it's a fascinating little play, I think. Prunella Scales was played the Queen. Yes. And it's a really interesting play because what it digs at is that whole sense of um, what the monarchy means and what the establishment is and who knows what at any given time and it's kind of implication which I think is 
oh, I don't know, I don't know quite enough about Blunt, but um, it's kind of implication. She knew he was a spy, but had been told, as MI6 did, that MI6 deliberately left him in place because they thought they could keep an eye on him. And um, so it's all about that kind of what's seen and what's not seen and what a monarchy represents, what a picture represents, what an interpretation represents. And the Queen is the cleverest person on the stage. And I think that's one of the interesting things that depictions of her tend to be that she's the cleverest yes that the best informed well that was interesting about blunt i mean i did cambridge spies years and years ago that was on uh, the bbc and he's come up in other stories that i've either seen or been part of and there was you know part of uh, when when we did cambridge spies originally it was still quite sensitive. People weren't ready to have them, either one of the four guys, glamorise in any shape or yeah. form. But they, but I think in some ways, Blunt was the final insult. The fact that he was so establishment and the fact that he was part of the sort of royal entourage in that way and that they'd given him such trust and power that that to have that subverted, that that, that entire period of history that they'd been made to look like fools in any way yeah um and i and it is an interesting thing i mean it's it's all like if you talk about the sort of the right-wing politics around the sort of rise of nazism and whether or not there was any support by royal family and the connections they had with the german royal family and all of that is incredibly controversial there's a very protective invisible wall about no 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 there's a purity here yeah. You know, that's the deal. We keep them pure. Yeah. And that's why people get so insulted by all the all the stuff around um, Charles and Diana and the relationship with Camilla and then around her death. And, you know, they, and, and I think why the crown remains controversial despite its popularity, because there is this invisible shield no no this is the good bit let's yeah. leave that at the center of all this yeah. centrifugal chaos and mess because that's the thing that's okay yeah though no, I, I i i think the queen herself one of the reasons that i think this is kind of a national trauma whatever you feel about the monarchy is that she, in a sense, writes the ship after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. After that time, because I, I think increasingly history reveals um, that Edward VIII was a different figure than her own father. You know, the fact yeah, that you've got yeah. George VI is one of the great strokes of luck of British history. And one of the obituaries I read this morning was saying that. Um, the fact that she remembered the war, the fact that she was a participant in yeah. that war, the fact that, you know, you saw her in her driver's uniform, you know, looking yes, at the young yes. princess, the fact that her first prime minister was Churchill, all of those things really mattered to Britain's sense of itself and yes. to its sense of itself of having in that war done the right thing and having, you know, gone forward from there. And I, I think that's true. I think that's very much about the image. And it's interesting with Morgan because you're absolutely right with the crown that as it's gone on he's got that he's dug more and more and more yeah, yeah. but if I was talking about how you know the queen I feel I know um, 
was essentially a construct from stage and film. The Queen, which is his first sort of shot at depicting her, which was the film with Helen Mirren and directed by Stephen Frears. It was, um, which was about the hullabaloo after the death of Diana and how the royal family... I think did rock then, you know, they, they, they kind of all their traditions and all of their um, protocols didn't cope yes. incredibly well with that. And I think that in that depiction of her and how she did respond and, and she did change and she did come back to London, um, Morgan kind of humanised her, you know, in an extraordinary way. That, that film, I... I haven't watched it for a bit, but my memory of the film is that she's such a kind of sympathetic figure in yes. that depiction. And I think, again, that helped people understand, perhaps, the way the royal family did react and yes. why they reacted. And that it almost was part of a reset around that time yes. in how the, how, the, how, we, how the monarchy behaved. Well, there's fact. a great history as well in the dramatising of, of any royal... Um, person or period of history I think with Mrs Brown's very interesting and with young Victoria and with uh, if we're talking cinematically um, and then of course with um, the King's speech that there uh, there is a point at which there are there are sort of pivotal moments in history when perhaps the protocol doesn't serve them and that they are thrown a lifeline by an extraordinary individual who, for whatever reason, has got close enough, they can affect change. And that lifeline is usually one of love and understanding and and of humanising. And and that's an interesting thing, that all of those films depict very human people who take on this role that they've been given you know, with a great weight and of responsibility and with deep, deep loyalty and understanding that has been, you know, that they their education has entirely consisted of this is what your life will be and these are the tools that you will need to, to fulfil your duties and all the rest of it. There is a point at which they they are terribly vulnerable, either, you know, with, with Elizabeth's father, King George the... the Six. Six. You know, that his stutter, yeah. you know, the Victoria with her great lover Albert and how she dealt with the loss of him and you know, that the very, very human things when they when they are their fallibility there's no place for fallibility and that that's the drama yeah so you're dramatizing and there is license to dramatize because there is something that we as the the populace the muggles are able to then relate and say they are human and they've had to put all of that to one side and understand as well yeah yeah strange fact oh strange fact (laughs) well maybe everybody else knows it but in the final picture of the queen when she looks so very frail when she greeted Liz Truss in that drawing room the two pictures on the wall are of Queen Victoria and John Brown (gasps) one with Prince Albert in the front they're both by Landseer one's a copy I think but both essentially Landseer sketches and one the one on the left shows her at the back on her horse with Albert at the front and John Brown as Gilly and the one on the right in that picture shows her walking with Brown leading the horse and I thought that was I I mean obviously when I saw that and read that in the times I didn't I didn't think she was 
going to die. I don't think anybody did. She looked frail, but you didn't think that. And that is that is kind of a real, absolutely linked with that humanising, that sense of emotion yeah, yeah. about people who are never really allowed to show their emotion, who do just, um, you know, even in the most kind of... Um, um, citizen monasteries, you know, like the Dutch, they, they still don't really show their emotion. They're no. still at a figurehead. And I, I think that is one of the roles of drama in helping us understand a um, figure, a, yes. a royal figure particularly, and but also helping, as I say, you're, you're obviously right, to humanise it, which is, you know, the other um, thing that sprang to mind this morning was Again, Peter Morgan, who really has just done this, but um, the audience, which I um, interviewed Morgan at the time that he was, um, well, he'd written it, but he was just about to go on stage. And I interviewed Peter Morgan and Stephen Doldry, who directed it, and um, Helen Mirren, who returned to play the Queen slightly reluctantly because she said she had, she said she didn't want to just end up playing the Queen. Yeah, but um, she returned and did because she felt it was such again such an interesting insight yeah. into history. And and she said this brilliant thing actually, Helen Mirren. Um, that she said that she felt that portrait painters, there are thousands of portraits of the Queen, you know, yeah. from the, the really famous Anioni where she's so glamorous to, to more recent ones, which are much more sort of photorealist yes. to Lucian Freud's sort of grumpy little yeah, figure. Yeah. And, and, you know, they are all interpretations of a woman. They are none of them the person who yeah. lived and raved for 70 years. They're all interpretations of somebody. And that as an actor, therefore, it's okay because it's just your interpretation. You yes. are not impersonating the Queen. You're not speaking her lines. You're speaking a playwright's lines. Yes. And I thought that was a really kind of, a really intelligent thing to say and also because that play the audience again um you know you saw the queen with the prime ministers and the imaginary relationships with them yes and i've all it's always stuck with me because you know morgan felt on the basis of his research that one of her favorites was harold wilson and 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 that kind of imaginary depiction based on fact but not documentary of that relationship between um a prime minister and a queen you know who were perhaps linked by their liking for sort of um simple things in life like walks and tupperware boxes it was that's really interesting and i feel that that's so i carry that into my feelings now about her death i think it's i think it's in terms of drama it's the ultimate dramatic situation to have two people in a room one who has made it their life's purpose to lead and you know change the nature of law and change the nature of infrastructure and that they've become fascinated perhaps initially as an ideologue and then ultimately trying to balance any power that they may have been given or not or have to fight for or or not depending on which leader is in the room with her at any one time that held up against somebody who literally was born into a world that she can never escape. Mm. And even with the abdication in 36, it apparently obsessed Edward for the rest of his life. My dad, weirdly off-topic, sort of on-topic, off-topic, um, the uh, chap who bought Harrods, um, Princess Diana's... Fired. 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 Yes, exactly. Yeah. Fired. So Fired, who bought uh, Harrods, also bought... Um, the house in Paris oh, yes, that yeah. that uh, the Windsors lived in, mm. 
And his story was, he went, he went to my dad, who's a graphic designer, and said, I want to put together a book because I have discovered the most extraordinary uh, treasure, which is that when, after he passed away, Wallace Simpson, according to this legend that he was then told, in her grief, um, wasn't always nice as pie with her right. staff. And that at a certain point where she was very, very frail, they that she used to pour over her old photographs of their life together. And so as a punishment, the, the staff hid a lot oh, of her no. photographs. <laughs> and when he bought the house, he then discovered this massive trove oh, wow. of uh, quite intimate photographs of their life together. So he put together a book which my dad did the graphics for. I think it is clear that, you know, and also The Crown depicts this as well, that despite his abdication, the lack of it, like similarly with Princess Margaret, being having role, roles t reversed in yeah. some way and, and responsibility taken from them, when that is all you have ever known, yeah. and to replace it. And similarly, I think almost slightly heartbreakingly with Harry and Meghan, you know, they've moved to America, but they, they're making business from a, from a uh, um, you know, the, the, their trademark, which is yeah. based on his history and, the, and their early life together. You know, that it, it's, a, it's quite a hard thing to yeah. escape. So you put, sorry to go back to the original thing, which is that you have those two people in a room, you have the political ideologue and somebody dynastically sort of um, cellophaned into a life that, that whether they choose to take it up or not defines them. Yeah. And that's dramatically, it's sort of extraordinary that it, it took as long as, we took as long as we did to start designing drama around it. Yeah. I think that also feeds into the fact that when you do come to think about it, that we, the reason that dramatists are drawn to depictions of monarchs yeah is that it is how society a society that has a monarchy even a constitutional monarchy defines itself against that monarchy at some levels yeah yeah and that i was thinking we i was thinking this morning um a bit about historical plays about monarchs and you know, again, it's often that you're you're right. It is often the tension between the personal and the political yeah. that they focus on. So, we were thinking about Schiller and and um, Mary Stuart, which you know is one of the great political plays about two queens. It's about Elizabeth the First and Mary Queen of Scots, and it sets up its arguments about what society should be and what women should be around the idea of these two historical monarchs, two historical queens who one is governing in the interests of the state and gives up a personal life, and one who governs f from the heart and from much more romantic notions of life. And I mean, that that's a bit of a shrinking down of Schiller, but I mean, that's definitely there. So in, in many ways, I think one, one of the reasons that Schiller's play keeps being performed is not just because it's a good history play or because it's a brilliant play, because you're right, all that tug of the personal and the political yeah. is on stage with two huge figures, but also because it's a, de a definition of women as yeah, monarchs. Yeah. I mean, there's something so interesting about that, I think, yes. that how we see queens 
Yes. And, you know, also, I find it interesting that, you know, that it's only until recently that we've been able to celebrate the, the pregnancy of Roy, you know, with with Megan and, you know, her, her having hers. Kate Middleton, Kate, Kate yeah. Middleton having her three. And, you know, previously to that, you think of all those images of, like, Lady Diana, Princess Diana, when she was pregnant. And, and I don't remember seeing really very many pictures of the Queen being pregnant, despite having four kids. No, and the, and the, the, the business of being a mum. Yeah, having a family. Having a family. Yeah. And, you know, that, that of course, there's a sort of dynastic need to procreate, to continue the bloodline, to produce heirs, all that, which of course goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and the pressure hasn't become less, even yeah. though you have a, you're female. You still have to sort of lead and, and do your job, but also make life. And and that's an extraordinary Yeah, and thing. reign in the, you know, yeah. it reign in the case of, of, of Queen Elizabeth. And that's an extraordinary thing that, you know, all the images that we celebrate now of the sort of Earth Mother and, you know, the openly breastfeeding and all of that, they had to sort of do all of that and, and just sort of carry on. I mean, Peter Morgan said when he wrote The Audience, he said, you know, that play, I mean, that wasn't about that. That wasn't specifically about, about women, but it, it, it was about the idea of the monarchy's relationship to the constitution, to the prime ministers, yeah. and how um, the Queen had walked that tightrope. He said it was really about what it was to be an inhabitant of the British Isles. And actually, you can extend that and say, because these images are, are so strong, are so strongly ingrained in our cultural understanding of our societies it is yeah. you know really what it is to be uh, a, an inhabitant of the world I mean I, I do think that is one thing I've been really struck by this morning is how how worldwide um, the Queen's impact is and you know this idea that of the funeral where everybody yes. is going to suddenly come because she was this figure worldwide of you know duty of obligation of dignity yeah and I think that's interesting too and that's again being promulgated through I do think the idea of her in drama is interesting because I do think it's her yeah her cleverness that's and her, 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 her her means of being um of, of combining her different roles that has been is the impression that you get left with but interesting as well that that um, you know, in, in terms of fighting for female leaders and and representation within leadership, in terms of emancipation, political emancipation, and uh, you know that we have had three female prime ministers. Now we've now got our third female prime minister. They still haven't had a female leader in America, despite the closeness of Hillary yeah. Clinton. You know that. All this time that we're fighting for representation in business, we're fighting for equal pay, we're fighting for, you know, you know, and women now still talk about having to work twice as hard to be seen as an equal. And I, and I, you know, there are still many, many rooms in which I think that is absolutely the case. Um, all this time, we've had a queen. Yeah. And I find that fascinating that somehow the shroud of monarchy means that it's a separate deal. Yeah. Unless... You know, that would have been a fascinating conversation, you know, 
Do you feel that you have had to work twice as hard as a female monarch to gain the respect of some of the rooms in which you've had to... Wouldn't that be fascinating? I mean, that was the other thing that came out um, before her death. There was that brilliant, brilliant, brilliant bit of film. And I'm sure it's sort of the, the film kind of things that Peter Morgan and Alan Bennett saw where she was working the room at a summit. Yeah. And everyone was there, Mitterrand and Cole. And um, so it must have been in... Yeah, in the 70s, I guess. And she's so on the money all yeah, the time. Yeah. She's speaking French in that brilliant kind of perfect French, but with the Queen's accent. And then, um, but she knows everything. You yeah. can see that she's absolutely on top of everything. And I think that that that's like that reminds you of the force she was the danger with her seeing her i think as the nation's granny is it kind of undervalues kind of her force and it would be really interesting to know whether she felt she had to work twice as hard because that film indicates that perhaps she did because she couldn't have been more on the money than she is in that little documentary and i think that's and as you say was then also bringing up a family and all the rest of it i think the other thing that's interesting is that that the theatre that's, I don't know, I don't know if it's fair to say it's got a problem now. The theatre that has to make a decision now is the Kiln in North London, which is about to revive, after 25 years, I think, Moira Buffini's Handbag, oh, yes, yes. which is a play actually about an elder. That it's quite clear they're imaginary figures, I think. There's an elderly monarch called Q and an elderly prime minister called T. But what it's about, the play, is um, the relationship between Mrs Thatcher and um, the Queen. And yeah. that was another area in which um, I, I think people were just fascinated by that because you did have that sense of them both being sort of kick-ass women. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then and and what that ten, you know what that might be like yes. you know those conversations between them especially since you know Mrs Thatcher often seemed more queenly than the queen but also i mean even in the case of Thatcher you know she was towing that line well, sort of walking the line rather, not towing the line, walking the line with, we, we think her original election campaign had footage of her washing up yeah. and making dinner with her family because she didn't want to appear to, to, to be an emasculating threat despite wanting to lead. Yeah. And, it, you know, it is that, you know, and, it, you know, when the Queen first wore the crown, women were seen as aggressive hysterics if they, you know, stuck their head above the precipice i mean mm. you know that hasn't entirely gone away but it is a a thing that, that that her neutrality the brilliance in her transcending charm grace preparation her her, her sort of stalwart strength again as a, either dramatically on stage or on screen, you know, because it is so dramatic and extraordinary, to then put that up against, you know, the bullet, the bullocks of Westminster, yes. or you know, whoever it is that you've got, you know, you're all within the crown dealing with her family, in the way that she has an extraordinary scene with, uh, between Josh O'Connor and um, uh, Olivia uh, Olivia Coleman playing the Queen, where she berates him for being too emotional. Mm. You know, th- this doesn't work. It doesn't work if you if you reveal too much. Yeah. So 
if any of that is true, it will be really fascinating to see what sort of monarch Charles then yeah. becomes because famously he has always been depicted as more emotionally available, more, you know, at the mercy of his own um, blood and urges. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just... And so that will be interesting. Will he be a, a very different monarch for this time? I mean, there's lots to, to be thankful for in terms of where he has politically... You know, put himself yeah, in the and past, particularly with green politics. Yeah, I'm was, excited about that. Yeah, yeah, and he is, of course, a different generation, and you know that makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, because it, it is her length of her reign is significant. But I think that I, I, I mean, I am sure that we will now see many plays about King Charles the Third. You know, that's going to be so. Uh, and 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 the same thing will go on applying that we see ourselves, the projections we make onto the monarchy are who we are, not just yeah, individually, definitely. but as a society. And yeah. I think, you know, that, so from the very sort of, you know, the comic, you know, when Mike Yarwood, the comedian, used to do Prince Charles talking to his plants and, yeah. and kind of make fun of him, to, to Mike Bart as rather brilliant King Charles III, um, where he imagined uh, somebody who was kind of riven by conscience in a very sort of Shakespearean way. Yeah. I, I, we're going to go on doing that and um, thinking about uh, the monarchy in terms of what it means for us as a society. And drama is going to go on being a part of a way of understanding that, really. And and a really important, you know, way of understanding that. So... I think, yeah. Well, I think they still provide masses of comfort to people. Mm. You know, almost, I, I don't mean to, if anybody finds this offensive in what I'm saying, but it is almost like a religion. And I, and I don't mean that to be, you know, in any way blasphemous because it's it's more about the institution of monarchy as opposed to, you know, any kind of celestial belief. You know, But I think that... That's such an interesting thing um, in terms of countries and cultures that have monarchy or leadership on that level that are kept separate. You know, that's a very big thing. You know, the effort involved in keeping monarchy separate from society yeah. and, and a part of the pomp and circumstance around that. But it is also invested in by... The populace. Yeah, you know. that's well. That's the that's the other dramatic aspect we haven't touched on. But you know, the whole idea of a coronation and all of that is essentially a drama, and yeah. it's a drama that in, and 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 actually, it's one that ensures the smooth transition. Yeah, of the crown from one person to another, and yeah. it does so by having you know ritual and um, iconography and all those things. And one of you know looking forward as an individual, not. It is going to be fascinating how um, the new king manages to 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 retain tradition but say new things. I mean, it's, yeah. it is it is a time of such kind of change and um, yeah, doubt really um, that it will be odd going forward. New language as well. I mean, there's so much new language forming at the moment in so many different realms of society. But if 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 that's possible with the monarchy to 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 develop new language to develop you know and they, you know the queen never used her role really politically to to dampen anybody's trajectory she was there to to 
be rock-like. Yeah. I wonder whether this new world, this new monarch, and the where we're at politically, which feels very odd in so many ways, that whether or not, you know, that he would, because of where he has, you know, exp- the way he has expressed himself in the past, whether that he will take that, you know... He'll walk that, walk that road. Well, as a last note, I mean, the, the other interesting thing that did occur to me this morning was that uh, just the kind of the cleverness, really, that the Queen's, um, she did allow herself as she got older yeah. to um, to reveal her humour, which everybody, I was listening to race course owners this morning talking about her, and they were so warm and it was so nice. Yeah. And I mean, they all talked about her humour and her knowledge again. And the fact that she allied herself in, in, in two very good jokes with James Bond for the London 2012 oh, yeah. Olympics, really, where everybody thought that, um, reading the Stephen Daldry interview this morning, he was involved in that. So he right. was involved in setting up all that. And he said that everybody thought, do you remember that she had to turn around at the desk? So you saw her, yes, her, yes. her at the desk and that everybody thought it was going to be Helen Mirren. And so there was a sort of double shock that she turned around and it wasn't Helen Mirren and it was the Queen. Yeah, yeah. So to do that was brilliant. And then the Jubilee to do Paddington. Oh, it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. It was very sweet. But I always remember her in the, the BFG. I mean, that wonderful scene when um, Sophie goes to talk to the Queen and the Queen helps with the BFG and then they d- depicted it again with, in the film with Mark, uh, Mark Rylance playing the BFG. And, uh, you know, and there is so much about the way that she is portrayed where she's just... Loving, yeah, just incredibly loving and sanguine about whatever sort of bonkers situation she finds herself in. Whether she's talking to a bear who eats marmalade sandwiches or being sort of projected out of a helicopter with James Bond, you know, the, all of that must have been with her permission. Yeah, you know, yeah. Which, which, as you say, is is a sign of great humour. Yeah, and, and also relatability. You know. Yeah, relatability. And I think that was, that is her own redefinition of the monarchy, which she allowed to happen. Yeah. And now we'll wait to see what King Charles III does and how he redefines things. And for now, that's perhaps goodbye from us. I'm Sarah Crompton. I'm the critic. I'm Nancy Carroll, the actress. <laughs>